Hi everybody, JP here with Dr. Ann Strunk, current president of the AANS, here to share with us some exciting news about next week's meeting in Los Angeles that we're all excited to attend. Uh, this is a really great event that we're going to be talking about today. This is the Women in Neurosurgery birthday celebration, the WINS birthday celebration. So this is something that we're all very excited about. WINS will be celebrating its one-third of a century achievements, and WINS will honor their history while enjoying libations, birthday cakes, and hors d'oeuvres. Uh, it's also a time when we will celebrate two members of the WINS, and one is Shelly Timmons, the other one is Corinne Morasco. All of us want to celebrate what they have done for neurosurgery, and hopefully we'll hear from them uh, during a small program. This is open to members with an entry fee of $150, but everybody really needs to come to it because the proceeds will go to NREF anyway. It's just an event that no one should miss. This is the Neurosurgery Podcast. Welcome back to the Neurosurgery Podcast. Here we are in person, sunny Miami at the spine section meeting. Always a pleasure to see Dr. Wang and get to record these face-to-face. And we are delighted to be joined again by a great friend of the show, Dr. Andrew Chan. You will all know and remember him from our beloved series, So You Want to Be a Neurosurgeon. I think we covered high school, college, medical school, residency, fellowship. And I'm telling you, 20 years out, I have you booked for So You Want to Be a Neurosurgeon Chairman Edition. (laughs) I've got you locked in. And so we're sitting here today to discuss a very different aspect of life. This will not be about the career progress through neurosurgery, but perhaps part of your own journey and your own progress towards neurosurgery and the discipline that is instilled. And Andrew, I'm going to let you say hello to the listeners and I'll let you tell them what we're going to talk about today. Oh, thanks again for having me on the show, both of you. This is always a pleasure to be here and be able to talk to you. And, you know, it's, it's funny, the, the other day we were chatting, uh, JP and I, and you know, we were talking about, you know, how do people get into neurosurgery? How do you even, you know, get the good grades? How do you get, come through the ranks and, 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 and get into this field? And, you know, it was funny. We were remarking that oftentimes people think that if you're Asian, you probably have some sort of tiger mom, uh, you know, stereotype going on in which, you know, you had some parents that were overbearing that really, you know, slammed all the good grades and everything down your throat so that you were able to, you know, achieve what you achieved and ultimately got you here. And we were, we were chatting about it and we we're wondering how frequent this is in our field, if it is a common thing. Yeah, because you, you know, I, I have watched you from, from behind as your career has progressed and you've always been a paragon in my eyes. You, you, this is the reason we have you come on for this, so, this series, So You Want to Be a Neurosurgeon, because every step of the way, you identified the perfect way to tap hands down the path and then executed on it. And so looking at you, I, I say to myself, this is someone who has discipline, who has drive, who is organized, right? And so clearly any, anyone is a product of our upbringing and our parents. So if I were to put on my stereotype hat, I might say, ah, Dr. Chen, he must have had a tiger mom to keep him so strict and on the path. What was your upbringing like? So it's funny. I would say it's actually completely the opposite of that. You know, mm. from initial, the initial parts of my life that maybe some find it hard to believe was that I was actually quite the rabble rouser in, in, you know, in elementary school. I was getting in trouble. I was always, you know, 
very active and talkative in class and getting, you know, getting in trouble. So, so much that I was actually sent home many days in second grade. And my mom was just irritated that she would have to come home from work uh, to pick me up from the principal's office. And it was hard for her because she was a single mother. My father passed away when I was four years old. Hmm. Uh, so she was all I had. And so really the expectations were very low early on in my life. <laughs> it was just, you know, if you get sent home one more time, you might go to military school. Uh, and and that's, that's pretty much it. And as long as I could Which get... Which probably sounded kind of fun when you were second grade. <laughs> but as long as I could get a passing grade on my conduct grade in my report card, that was all she wanted. But now, I mean, can I... Can I let our listeners know the moniker. I mean, you're known as Chanimal in our world. And how many publications do you have now? Uh, something over 100. And you're in your first year of practice. So over 100 publications, and they're real publications. It's not like a bunch of BS, right? It's not just publications where you were tagged on with your friends. These are publications, you, you, we're in several together, but you did the lion's share of the work. It's not that uh, other model where it's like, you put me on your 10 papers and I'll put you on my 10, right? This is, these are your papers largely, right? You wrote them, mostly. Well, it's a whole team effort, of course, with but a study I mean, group. Yeah, but you're leading it. You're, you're doing the, the yeoman's work. And so that's really a great accomplishment. And, and so now, you're, now you are a neurosurgeon, right? So you want to be a neurosurgeon. Now you are a neurosurgeon. I think, I think um, what JP's getting at is, are there formative pieces of the upbringing um, that make you so successful. And, and I think that the two Amy's, Amy Chu and Amy Tan, have done so much destruction to Asian culture in America. Uh, Amy Tan from the Joy Luck Club and Amy Chua from, you know, Tiger Mom and all that. I think they're both married to white dudes, by the way, both married to, to white people, which is fine, but like it's, 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 it speaks of their, of, of maybe like their cultural reference frame. Tell me about, um, were there memories of when you were growing up that, that, crystallize in your mind that you're going to just be this guy that's going to be so badass? No. I mean, this never was something, certainly at the high school level, I I didn't even know I was going to go into the medical field at that point. You know, I was just trying to enjoy, you know, running on a cross-country team, playing soccer, having friends, you know, the typical high school experience. And it just kind of was something that when I went to UCLA for college, kind of fall into, you start realizing, wow. I do have all this, you know, background that makes me interested in medicine and interested in the neurosciences. And, you know, I, I guess I'm achieving high enough to, you know, get into this field of medicine that some of my friends are talking about. Let me look at that a little bit more. Mentorship. That must be a key part of this, mm-hmm. right? Because I remember when I was at UCLA in uh, 1990, I was there doing a master's of public health, which I did not finish because I didn't, I was two credits short. I felt it was not worthwhile. Um, but it was between college and medical school. And I just remember I, that was the first time in my life that I hung out with a lot of Asian people. I went to all the Asian clubs. I became part of the Hawaii club, danced Hawaiian dance. Like it was my first time feeling like I was at home because at Stanford I was with the white people and the fraternity made, made up mostly football players and wrestlers, which there was almost no other Asian people. Um, and I just remember seeing so many Asian, mostly guys, who had worked really hard and gotten really good GPAs not get into a single medical school. And this is a long time ago. It's even harder now. It's even worse in terms of anti-Asian sentiment. But, you know, you must have had something differentiating because that, that was around the time I was there, I think, or shortly thereafter when you were in college. Um, there, must, there must be something that was different about you. Well, I think there was always this emphasis to really be well-rounded. 
you know, I, I was never forced to just really focus on grades or do well on school marks. You know, that was never a point of emphasis, even in high school. You know, I, I would show my mom my, my report card and say, hey, look, I got all these A's. All my friends get, you know, extra allowance or get paid money for that. And she said, I don't give it. <laughs> I don't care what your grades are. You know, she actually would say, I don't care what your grades are. I just care that you're a good person. Uh-huh. Hmm. And so that was a very formative thing for me, you know, not having any of this kind of, I guess, secondary gain regarding, you know, why am I, you know, working so hard in school? It was just an end in itself. So it's interesting because that you say this because I have the same experience. My parents never asked me about my grades or told me to study or did, did anything like what the stereotype is in in you know in these sort of popular culture visions of what Asia is. I know it's different in South Korea. I know it's different in mainland China. Um, the Gaokao and all this stuff about there's one exam that determines your fate. And my parents went through. They they said that's stupid. Why would we? We came here to, to avoid that kind of bullshit. You know, and, and maybe we're selecting ourselves out. But I get the feeling that most people who are listening that are not of Asian descent, they don't think that. They think that our parents are like pushing us. You see it in the movies all the time. Like the Asian parent is just there controlling and you've got to be on the chess club and all this stuff, right? Like I never did that to my kids. I mean, why, why do you think that happens? Well, it's so interesting. And I think it's, it's, it's a different way of interpreting the immigrant experience. And I think in, in the stereotype, you can filter it how a, you know, being a poor immigrant growing up in an Asian country would make you, you know, maybe be that tiger mom. But on the flip side, I think my mom's experience was completely opposite. So she grew up in a very humble upbringing. She was, you know, living in not even a, a full apartment. At some point, she was on a roof uh, with a tin shack over it uh, at some time. So she grew up very poor in Hong Kong. Finally, when she came over here, she became an accountant over here, had a nice, comfortable, you know, living, um, was raising two sons on her own. Um, and you know, she said to me when I was applying to medical school, no, why are you applying to medical school? I didn't work this hard, so you have to work hard. Hmm. And so it was just such, you know, a, a different, you know, experience. And I think a lot of people would expect because a lot of people, you know, I get this now throughout the past few years, you know, oh, what did you do? Your, your mom must have, you know, be so proud of you to get into neurosurgery. She must have pushed you so hard. Uh, but that was never the case. And in fact, it was the opposite. She, she tried to dissuade me from getting into medicine and certainly neurosurgery at every point she could. Yeah, that, that's really interesting. I think a common thread through these memories and stories that were kind of circling around is motivation, right? Um, the, this whole concept is a description of a fictitious and a stereotypical embodiment of extrinsic motivation, right? And something I've seen in medical education writ large, but it's, you know, obviously my experience in neurosurgery residency is that each year, uh, you know, in the past five years, the decade that, that I've been involved in the field of medicine in the United States and in my small capacity, it seems like we're gradually removing ways to motivate people extrinsically. You know, we, we talked a lot in the past year about step one going to pass fail. And that used to be something that this number is important, and so you have to work really, really hard to get a good number so that you can get the job that you want, et cetera, et cetera. Now it's pass-fail, so you just have to pass. There's a loss of some extrinsic motivation. We, we talk a lot about the selection process for neurosurgeons, but once you have matched, the ability for discipline, for uh, change of jobs is, is very minimal. It's a hush-hush thing that we don't talk about, and so... I feel more and more we rely on intrinsic motivation in our field, um, certainly within training, but then once you're out there in the community. Um, so it seems like the picture you're painting of your life and 
even with your mom discouraging you from, from going into medicine, all this reflects to me that there was no extrinsic motivation for you. There was nothing pushing or pulling you that this all had to come from within. Does, I mean, am, am I completely off base here? Does that resonate with you at all? And if so, what is pushing you if it's not that stereotypical power from above? Well, I think that that's going to take a lot of introspection, probably a lot of time with a psychiatrist to really figure <laughs> it out. But, you know, what I'll say is I think that's the exact dichotomy. You know, I think a lot of our colleagues that are burnt out, you kind of ask them what happened. It's a lot of times they have all these extrinsic motivators that have pushed them along throughout life. You know, you must get into you know, a great university like UCLA, then you must, you know, get into a medical school and you must get this on the MCAT and then you must be a doctor because we came over here as immigrants and you must be a doctor and that's mm. the only career I could see for you. And then once you're there, once you've crested, you know, the, the peak, what else is there? You've been pushed all along. Right. As opposed to when you have the intrinsic motivation, this is a limitless resource. This is something that you, you just, you know, for me, for example, you, you bring up the, the over 100 papers. It's just something that's interesting to me. You know, no right. one's telling me to do this. Um, and, you know, that's, I think, why, you know, you, continue, can, you can continue to have success in this field. You know, you need to be intrinsically motivated. Like, Dr. Wang is intrinsically motivated to continue to innovate and push the field forward. No one's telling him to do that. No one is, you know, having a stick over his shoulder and saying, if you don't do this, you know, I'm not going to promote you. I'm not going to, you know, give you more money or something. So... And I think that's what it can give you a sustainable drive the rest of your life. I will tell you something that, that my dad did. That So, you know, people wonder, like, because my parents are immigrants. I was born in the U.S., right? And um, I remember when I, I was so proud of myself, I graduated from Stanford in two years. And I was trying to save my parents money. So I was literally taking seven-plus classes a quarter. It was ridiculous. And people, my advisor was like, dude, I've never seen this before. And I did the same thing in business school. They were like, they're like, nobody wants to do this. I'm like, and it was a mistake actually to rush through college like that. It would have benefited much more economically by making connections with people who are now billionaires right. uh, at Stanford. Right. And, and I knew all those people, but you know, I wasn't really interested. I was just pushing my way through. And um, when I finished college, uh, I was going to graduate and my dad, you know, was, with me and I said listen you want to come to graduation he said no and I said and he didn't go to my high school graduation either because I never really graduated high school I just left and and I said you don't want, like you paid for all this like you don't want to go to graduation he goes he goes eh you know you'll find that like you know there'll be other things that matter more <laughs> like, like medical school which he did go to that graduation I think in some ways he was he was trying to motivate me to say look keep going because I wasn't going to medical school after college I went to UCLA right um, I, you know, I, I don't know what it is. I think part of it is, as JP saying, this issue of the immigrant experience uh, perspective on, you know, what the world's going to be like. And, you know, we're the beneficiaries of that. So, you know, your accomplishments are off the chart. Uh, if I were to take the people graduating in your year, and I don't want to disparage anybody else, but it is it, certainly in the spine cadre, I, I, I don't think I've ever seen anything quite like it. Um, so that's why we want to talk to you about this. But let's go to what's happening now. So you're no longer in the bubble of people telling you what to do. Now you, well, people, I guess they might tell you what to do, but you're your own man. You're a neurosurgery attending. What is, what's happening? Like, tell, just tell, it, I was told, as I've said before, that the first three years, and Mike Apuzo told me this, are the hardest years of your life. And I say it all the time, people laugh at it, and then I always hear people come back to me, 201, they say, you know what? You were absolutely right. Nothing mm -hmm. could have prepared me for this, as hard as residency was, right? So, so what's it like? You're going through it now. Tell us about it. I mean, you don't have to bare your soul, but tell us 
something that'll help our listeners. Right. Oh, well, it's a completely different ball game, and it's just what everybody always said. You know, when you start operating, and there's no other attending name behind you. You know, and, and you think you're 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 such a stud when you're a chief resident. You can do all the cases. You graduate from a great training program like UCSF that has all the complexity. You know, you can drink from a faucet. You know, but you know, and then when you're on the flip side, suddenly you're like, wow, you know, it's such a different you know way when you have to do even a, a simple case and no one's behind you. You're the you're the buck stops with you, and so that is an interesting learning experience when you're doing all these surgeries. Um, also, now exactly as you said, you create your own path. You chart your own path forward. You of course take all your experiences. You still have a lot of mentors and friends throughout the country. But now you decide what's best for, for you, what's best for your practice, what's best for your patients, what's best for your research, what's best uh, for, for however you want to cut up that piece of the pie. But now, now you get to make the shot. So it's, it's, it's been a, a learning experience. And, you know, I think you're, you're always incrementing towards what you think is ideal. But I think you're always learning and trying to get closer without ever actually quite getting there quite yet. So when I'm visiting a professor at a place, um, you know, they usually try to do this thing where they try to show you a case. I'm actually coming to UCSF this week, actually. So I want to thank my friends Praveen Mumanini and Manish Aghi for inviting me out there. Um, you know, they, they want to do this thing where they show off and show you cases and like, what would you do kind of thing. This is what we did. I hate that. I think it's pedestrian. I don't think it's relevant. Um, so I, I said, let's just have a conversation. And let's talk about what it's like to be a neurosurgeon. And I bring up this issue often, which is, um, you know, there's hundreds of residents out there. They go through seven years. They're paid nothing. They're working inordinate hours. And we don't need to comment for the sake of the RRC and all that, but it is a lot of hours. And um, you're not in control of anything. And you're kind of, I don't want to say you're beaten up, but it's a hard go, right? And nobody quits. Like maybe one person out of a thousand, right? It, you know anybody quit? I don't know anybody quit. Like quit residency? Was there one? I think there's some. There's uh, some, yeah. but they're quite rare. It's yeah. not like one in 10 or one in even 30 quit, right? Do they? I mean, it's quite I rare. don't know the current numbers. It's very yeah. rare, right? Yeah. And when someone quits, it actually hurts the program. You hear about why that person quit and is that person's place malignant and all that. But then you become an attending. And the statistic, I believe, JP, correct me if I'm wrong, is that within the first two years, when you're being paid a gazillion dollars, and you're completely in control of your life now. You can do whatever the fuck you want, right? Almost half the people leave their job within the first two years. Hmm. How is that even possible? Like, if you just do some math on that, and I'm not saying, look, duh, you can't just leave residency. Like, I understand all those pieces. You're making nothing, getting beat up, and then you've got everything, and you're like, I'm out. <laughs> How does that happen so fast, right? And so to me, the answer has to be something about these first couple years. And it's not like these people keep moving jobs every two years. It's like, it's that stage. Did they choose the wrong job and they just were not prepared? What do you think it is? What do you think it's, it, it, what, why is that statistic out there? Well, well, on the theme of extrinsic motivation, my hypothesis is that these are individuals that have their last manifestation of something extrinsically pushing them to do something that they might not want to intrinsically do. And that might be their last thing that they did was their selection of their first job. For example, what are you told when you're applying to neurosurgery residency from any program wherever, no matter where it is in the country? You have to, we're training academic neurosurgeons. We're gonna train the future leaders in neurosurgery. We're gonna do research. That's like pounded everywhere, right? But how many people go into academic neurosurgery and actually are successful in it? It's a very low number, right? right? And so maybe a lot of these individuals that are changing jobs, maybe some of them, I don't know the numbers, this is just a guess, but you know, one last time of, you know, maybe I wanna be this kind of neurosurgeon. I, I thought I wanted to be this. I wanna make my name doing this. 
Then once you're there and you're actually living the reality on a day-to-day, even the first two years, you can learn very quickly. You don't like this. You don't like, you know, maybe to do all this research. You don't want to stay on the weekends doing research study group meetings. You don't want to go to all these conferences and present and teach courses. And then you're saying, oh, I'm, I'm just going to go maybe, you know, to another practice. I'm going to, you know, maybe focus on clinical things. And I think that's why you have that change. It's that last expression of something pushing you to do something you maybe didn't really want to do. It's what do you think, JP? What, 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 what's your thought on this? You've seen some people come and go now. Um, I think that's an excellent insight. Um, I also think we were talking earlier today with uh, Dr. Dan Shuba, and that, that episode will air, and he was talking about poor planning in terms of how far in advance you start looking for a job. And so I, I think there... I, I fear this eventuality for myself and I'm trying to plan against it, but I, I think it can be very easy to, you know, have your shoulder to the stone and keep your head down and just get through residency and then you reach the end and realize, oh, I need a job now. And it's not just you reach the next PGY and someone tells you to do this. You have to go find a job. You have to find an opening where there's a market. And if you didn't put the time in in advance of that, maybe years in advance, you will wind up having to take some job because you need to work. And then you realize, oh my goodness, I didn't prepare for this at all. I need to start looking for the job I actually want. And that might be that couple year turnaround where people show up and have the shell shock like you described, Andrew, and say, whoa, this is my actual life now? No, 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 this isn't what I wanna do. Um, I do wanna take an abrupt left turn though, uh, because talking about parenting and upbringing, um, you talked about your mom and how she raised you with a lot of support without a lot of that pushing and the extrinsic motivation and even tried to dissuade you from the path you're on because it was such hard work. And like so many people, I imagine one day you might find yourself a father. Have you thought about when you have children one day, it's obviously hypothetical, we'll, we'll speak purely in the subjunctive here, um, not just what kind of father you may be, but thinking about any sort of career or professional interest your children might have, would you want to influence them? Would you dissuade them from the path that you've chosen? I know this is, this is all down the road, but it's something I, I think every pre-parent, we could say, every, every person who, who doesn't have children yet, every now and then we sit back and think, oh, well, one day when I have a, a daughter, one day when I have a son, I'll tell them X, Y, Z. Where are your thoughts about this, thinking about your own upbringing? So it's, I'm laughing because I talk to, about this with my fiance, Dan Tam, all the time. And, and she, she thinks, or she disagrees with what I conceive I would be like as a parent. And I'll tell you She's what. She's almost certainly right. <laughs> and, and I'm sure she is. But you know, what I conceive is, look, you know, I, and I think this is informed by her seeing how intense I am about my job, about the things I do, and mm-hmm. how I live my life. So she thinks that there could be no way that I don't hold my child to the same intensity. But I realize that every single human being is different in this world. And what works for one person could absolutely backfire for another individual. So that's why I don't think you can have any kind of cookie cutter prescription for your kids. You know, mm-hmm. it just depends who they are. If they want to be an artist, if they want to be in a rock band, if they want to be a neurosurgeon, that's fine. You know, as long as they do something that makes them happy, uh, that's all I want. And she actually, I tell her this, and she says, you know, essentially, BS, you're going to be a tiger dad, and you're going to make sure they go to Harvard, and there's going to be no other place they can go. But, you know, I tell her, there's no way. I don't think I'm like that. So I guess, you know, hit me back in about 20 years, and yeah. we'll, we'll see. 
Great. Well, we want to thank you for coming on the show again. Uh, I think so many young individuals have benefited from your wisdom over the years, especially during pandemic. Uh, Andrew, I'm going to be following your career very closely. Thank you for writing all those freaking papers. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks. Thank you. Disclaimer time. The opinions and ideas expressed in this show are solely those of myself, Dr. Wang, and our guests. They do not represent the opinions of any professional institution or organization. This show is for entertainment purposes only and does not constitute the giving of medical or legal advice. Listening to or participating in this show does not constitute continuing medical education or any other professional certification. It's just a show, everybody.